0: Hello and welcome to Found, the TechCrunch podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the entrepreneurs who build them. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I'm joined by my co-host,
1: Becca Skutak.
0: Hey, Becca, how's it going? Are you prepared for this week?
1: I am prepared. I'm also riding the high of winning $100 on a scratch ticket this morning. Oh, wow.
0: Okay. That's amazing. That's better news than anything I've heard today yet. Wow. That's a lot. I feel like for a scratch ticket, that's a good good haul.
1: Most I'd ever won is $2, so. Yeah, usually just like that.
0: the card back, if that, right? But. Well, I guess we're all dining out on Becca today, but mm-hmm. you use prepared multiple times during that intro for a reason. I will get to that in a minute. But first of all, some housekeeping On April 20th in Boston, we have TechCrunch Early Stage, which is an event where we talk about how to be an entrepreneur, how to raise money, how to build a business, all the advice. And we'll be there. And you can use code FOUND for 40% off both founder and investor passes. So please do join us. Also, TechCrunch just launched Inside Startup Battlefield, which is a four-part series all about what goes into our annual Startup Battlefield competition. So go subscribe to Inside Startup Battlefield so you don't miss an episode. So as I alluded to today, we are talking to the founder of a company called Prepared. His name is Michael Chime, and he built this business with his co-founders, which figured out a way to provide more data to 911 dispatchers, through access to video, picture, GPS location, and text messaging on your phone. That helps them more effectively respond to calls. So let's hear from Michael about how he's modernizing 911. Hey Michael, how's it going? Good Daryl, how are you? Doing great, doing great. Looks like it's a beautiful morning there in New York. The listeners can't see the video, but he's, he's got quite the view. And it's turning out to be pretty nice. No one
1: wants to see my view. (laughs) You You have
0: a view of New York too, don't you, Becca?
1: Yeah, a view of my like radioactive backyard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But Michael, we're not here to talk about views. We are here to talk about your company, Prepared. And do you want to give the listeners kind of a high-level overview of what that is?
2: Yeah, happy to. So Prepared is live stream video, picture, text on top of 911 calls. So think if... You call 911 today. Um, you may not even know this platform exists in the 911 center. You would just call like you normally would. The dispatcher or the call taker on the other side would have our platform up. They can shoot you out a text. So they'd say, Hey, I just sent you a text. There's a link in that text. You'd press one button and then start streaming through your device. And we've heard people describe it as kind of a radio to TV shift in 911. You now have visuals on top of the, the audio. You're in emergency.
0: Cool. Yeah. That, I mean, it seems like one of those things where once you hear about it, you're kind of like, wait, why doesn't this already exist? Given yeah. where we're at technology wise, but why doesn't it already exist? Like, yeah, you it, probably know better than most. Yeah,
2: maybe context on that and like how I even got to it, because I think like yeah, one of the the core problems is like people just aren't thinking about nine one one very often at all. And maybe that's part of the problem here is just like, it's not something you just like easy SaaS or vertical, but like, you know, these different things that people build in. It, and it's like, you know, you don't think about it unless you have to. Right. And so like, how did I start thinking about nine hundred and eleven is an interesting story. So I, you know, I actually started working on it four years ago. I was a undergrad at Yale. It was me and two other undergrads to start, but I've always been passionate about public safety because people ask me all the time, like, why build something in public safety? That seems unique and mm-hmm. hard. And So I started there. I actually grew up in a town right outside where there was an active shooter event in Mm. 2012. 2012, I'm super young, you know, 13, 14 years old. But I saw how that impacted, you know, what was a really small blue-collar town that I grew up in. And and I think that was the the catalyst for me. I went to college thinking about these types of problems. And, you know, the intention was not like, hey, how do I build some big business? It was just like, how could I build something that would help? And, And we started there. We built this simple app schools would use in emergencies. And the basic idea was, as opposed to a school using a walkie-talkie or PA system, we'd say, Why don't you use your phone? That's a much faster, better means of communication. Everybody has one. And that did well. We were both shocked and excited when that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, hundreds of schools across the country started launching this simple platform, but taking it full circle back to, you know, why is the way of the world this or why is the world this way, or how did I get into it? Like schools would ask me that question all the time. They'd say, Hey Mike, say there was a real emergency on my site. How would nine one one get this info? Right, and in the beginning, I'm super candid with them. Like, I don't know, just call them. Would anybody just call nine one one? And they're like, you know, like they're like, well, no. There's all this data here that I can't verbalize. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And they were talking about picture, video, and text, and I found that fascinating. You know, similar to you, why wouldn't I be able to? Or the question I'd always ask myself is like, you know, why would I be better equipped to communicate to my friend right now in this moment than I would be to nine one one? And that could be my my worst moment. so I was interested in that same question. I would really just knock on the door of 911 centers and say like, Hey, I have all this data. I'd love to give it to you. I think it's life saving. What's the next step. And really they'd come back to me and be like, Hey kid, I think you are pulling life-saving data, but I can't take that in. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they introduced me to the problem. So despite the fact that 80, 90 plus percent of 911 calls are now for mobile devices, the systems they use every day are still built on the assumption that all the calls are landlines. Sure. And that's the, uh, the way of the world. We just haven't caught up to the fact that we have a really powerful device in our pockets yet. So it's really a systems problem that in 911 stack they today just can't take that information in. It's built on the fact that only audio could come in. And so really that's how we started building against it thought that was a really big problem.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say I'm curious since this was such like a low-tech area, what is it like to build tech? for a system right. that's already pretty behind. Yeah. Like, what was it like sort of having this realization, taking the idea and sort of turning it into something you could actually give to these call centers that they could use?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I think the very next step for us was like, you know, past just saying, hey, this is a really big problem, right? There's 250 million 911 calls just in the US a year. And so if 90% of them are truly coming from mobile device, you're talking about hundreds of millions of calls, right, that are leaving life-saving data, on the table. Mm-hmm. So I was like, once my co founder was like, okay, well, what? Let's just do a simple constraint analysis, right? Like, we had a similar kind of conclusion. Why is this the way of the world? Yeah, you know, it seems so natural. It seems like this data would be really important. Why is that the way things are set up? So, you know, you ask a really interesting question. It's like, okay, hey, you have these really antiquated, decayed systems that 911 is using today. How do you get around that? How do you build against it? And really, where we um, started and still are today is we, we don't actually touch those systems we come in over the top of those systems. So you know, while those are on-prem systems, call handling systems that they're using, they're accessing our platform from the browser on a different screen. So if you call 911, they have your phone number, caller ID. They take that phone number, then put it into our system and then start the interaction with the caller there. Mm-hmm. And another thing that we thought was really interesting that I'd love to dive deeper into is like, hey, is this a 10x better technology problem? Right. You know, you think about, in a lot of spaces, it's just like, it's really hard to even get 10x better technology. We were lucky in some ways where that value prop was pretty simple. It's like, you know, you're using AD systems, like this is, you know, modern innovation, you know, 10x better technology was really easy to show. So then what is the core challenge? We thought similar to like Yammer and when they came to enterprise, the government was actually kind of a business model innovation challenge, as opposed to just a technical innovation sure, challenge. Yeah. Like my one of the working theories for us is like the, the real cause of stagnation is the fact that you got to go through 24 month RFP procurement process to get anything new in and there's not really much incentive to innovate when you have these big systems because if I'm someone sitting at a city I don't want to run that RFP long process either right it's arduous it's yeah, hard yeah. and I'm, I'm doing life-saving work and so I'd much rather go to that big player and say hey can you add this as opposed to you know and there's no real incentive for them to do it because they know you know I have a 5 year long contract why would I I could do it at the end of it. So on these time horizons, you have no meaningful innovation. So another thing that we did is we offered a base tier of our platform to 911 centers for free, for no cost. So I think the kind of intersection of those two things where one, you don't have to rip and replace the systems that you're using today that are antiquated. And secondly, you could start tomorrow on the platform for no cost. That's really allowed us to bring innovation to a space where I think that technology is really decayed or antiquated. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and how did you do that? Like, how did you manage to actually offload that kind of yeah. burden? Like, that seems really challenging too. And yeah, because the data I imagine is very sensitive too, right? So, like, sure, yeah, but.
2: yeah. So, so we actually just started with going to nine one one centers and saying, "Hey, we have this school's app. We just want to connect the data from them." Mm. And we didn't even like at that time when. You know, they were saying, hey, I can't take this data in. We didn't even really think about the broader use case of anyone on a call. And maybe we should have saw it before, <laughs> but we didn't. And so what we would solve is when we talked to the everyday dispatcher, they'd be pumped about the idea of taking this information in, but really frustrated with, like, why can I only get it if a school has this situation? You know, that's like the vast majority of my calls are not coming from a sure. school. And so how do we expand it? So I think the first thing we had to think through was, okay, you know, like now we want to expand this to every single 911 call. What would we do? And the first place is just the caller, right? Like, How do we bring innovation in? Like an app probably doesn't make sense. Like, You just aren't planning for this emergency that you stumble across two weeks in advance and have some app downloaded, ready to report that emergency. And so we're like, how could we do this without a native experience? And we thought SMS uh-huh. was the best way. So you would just, no citizen education needs to happen. You just call 911 like you normally would. Um, and then you get this text where now we can use your browser to communicate all of that information. So the first invasion was there, like, how could we just get it to everyone? On the the dispatch side, very similar idea. And I kind of went through it. It's just like, hey, I don't want to rip these systems that you're using out today. How could I do that simply and lightweight? And we found that, you know, accessing it via the web, you know, just easy. You have to log in and have permissions was an easy way yeah. to, to do that.
0: But then, what about housing and like stewardship of the data? Like, because then it's like obviously going to the cloud, right? But yeah,
2: yeah, for sure. So, so it is all in the cloud, stored securely, like just compliant, all of the things mm-hmm. that a city would would ask. And you know, like if you ask me the question, like, "Hey, why is now the right time yeah, yeah. for something like this?" A part of kind of a multi-pronged answer that I would throw back is. Well, they're they're already ingesting video and working through it today. The advent of body cams is something that I think right. all departments had to work through. And so they're already storing tons of video. They're already kind of redacting tons of video. They do things like FOIA requests already. And so... I think the swim lanes and process had already been defined well before us. Yeah. And so we we kind of came in and said, hey, this is very, very similar. Now the device is just different. It's coming from the, the car, but in terms of storage and re- retrieving it and what to do with it, those are all well-defined processes that a department or agency has already worked through.
0: Cool. Yeah. I mean, because that, when I'm thinking through it, that seemed like the biggest hurt all but it yeah i didn't realize those rails were already in place like how did you do that in terms of like customer discovery just talking to places you found like oh like we could just use this for that or yeah how did you come through this with the ideation phase i guess
2: yeah like so i think that keeping to these personas of mm-hmm. like you know the caller and then the agency which could include the dispatcher or the responder etc like i think on the agency side that's where the swimlanes were built And they were documented and well-defined and just like most times when they ask questions, we would say, you know, okay, we'll match what you're doing here Mm. with body cam. So it wasn't like exactly as we started to have those conversations, it was like, okay, you're just pattern matching Mm. things that they'd already done in the past. And where I think there is innovation still to happen in the space broadly and where we had to really learn fast was with the caller, you know, and, and not to go too deep into these differences, but like when, when a body cam is purchased by an agency. Now that's the the owner of that's the agency. Sure. Right. So like they own the data associated with it, the data is stored by them, et cetera. This is different. The caller owns that yeah. device. Yeah. And so how is well, what about permission to their device? What about access to their device, et cetera? And so we one of the things that we really thought deeply about was how do we make sure that the user is consenting to this every single time sure. when they want to? And like, you know, one position that we actually take is that we do think. In some respects, this is the people's body cam, right? And so like, if you think about like at its core, what is a body cam attempting to solve? It's really just clarity. It's really an understanding clearly of what happened. And that benefits everyone. That that benefits the person on the scene. That benefits the officer. Everybody, if they're doing the right things, want clarity on what's happening. What we found super interesting is that like that three to four minutes before an officer gets on scene or before someone with a body cam gets on scene, we lack clarity. We don't have a good understanding of what's happening and and in a lot of cases that's where the bad stuff happens right if you're fighting right an officer runs on you normally stop fighting and and so we don't capture any of that data today and we think the device will ultimately do that so on that point we think that every city should you know at least allow the citizen if they want to to send this information through that they should be able to as part of the record say you know this is exactly what happened this is my perspective but by the same token they never have to And so, you know, going back to your question about like, how did we work through this Mm -hmm. is we have multiple permissions where a user is actually deciding whether to share their information or not. Well, first you're calling 911, which is indicating, Hey, I need, I need help. The second is we're sending a link. You're clicking on that link. Once you click on that link, there's a big blue button that says, press here to record and stream. You press it and then it allows access to your camera the same way like Instagram or Facebook would. So that's where I think, you know, user permissions and making sure that that was well-defined and easy to use and well-communicated was another thing we had to learn.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you describe that experience, I realize I've had it before, but I've had it with like... yeah. Traeger customer service when I was trying to fix my (laughs) smoker like (laughs) yeah but it was the same like they go through all the permissions and everything and they explain on the phone like by the way we're going to send you this link and you know it was all very clear and I knew what I was opting into so I can see exactly how that would work and how it would be reassuring to me as a user of the service on the end user end
2: right yeah totally right and I think there's an interesting point there that you made where it's like you know, a lot of the things that we're talking about are innovations that the private sector has seen. Right. That they've already been using for a long time. And another interesting question there is like, well, why then haven't these innovations got over? And part of it is bureaucratic cycles, mm-hmm. it's systems are old, etc. But I also think it's their complexity, right? There's a lot of hard things to sift through. Well, someone's in an emergency, you know, how do we share that information? And you know, that's another reason that I was really compelled. I dropped out of Yale yeah. when I was gonna be a senior to work on this full time. Like why I was really compelled is that I think where really complex problems are is where the opportunity is because people kind of ignore them. You know, let's take the low-hanging fruit first. And I think there's no better place for applications of that type of technology than life-saving outcomes, right? So where where we could make the most impact is where, you know, people are calling in, you know, life-altering or life-saving situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And something I'm curious about, because it is, as you mentioned, it's good to sort of get that clarity. Obviously, body cams is something that a lot of police departments and the like have adopted. Yeah. But I also know from reading different articles and stuff over the last few years, that a lot of 911 call centers are severely understaffed and sort of overworked. And a lot of people there don't really have the resources they need. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this type of a product both gives them more clarity on the situation, but also adds another element, maybe makes the call longer, maybe adds more stuff for them to sort of sift through and decide on. And I'm curious how you guys think about making that balance of giving these people more information, but also maybe not loading them with like a heavier burden when they're trying to make these quick decisions on the other end
2: yeah and just like one step back on this because i think it's helpful this is a a really awesome question we get asked this almost every time we talk to a 911 center and and i think it's broadly the agency whether it's police fire EMT, the entire public safety agency is understaffed today they're trying to do a lot more with a lot less people Mm -hmm. and it's a challenging thing that they're working through so just to speak to what we've done so far we launched the software in beta, maybe 15 months ago. Within our first month, we saw a great reaction from 911. centers. We saw double-digit cities sign up on the platform. Fast forward to today, almost 12 months from that time, we've seen almost 10% of 911 centers across the US adopt our tool, to sign up to partner with us. So you've seen kind of a really exciting reaction from 911 centers on this. And so, you know, transitioning over to that question, we actually think, again, going back to that narrative of clarity of the situation it is very very helpful in after the event as we're trying to sift through it but like i think a dispatcher really benefits from clarity as well and i can give you an example where this is actually helpful in better allocating resources and actually reducing my time on call so one of our first use cases ever was someone was calling in and they didn't know how to do cpr mm. and they said hey you know dispatcher i've never done this in my life but this person in front of me is unconscious what do i do and that dispatcher struggled for minutes doing the best that they could struggled for minutes on the call trying to figure out what they were doing wrong. Were their hands placed in the wrong way? Were they breathing at the wrong time, etc.? They passed the phone to their friend because they remembered that they had this live stream. Platform passed it to their friend, they live stream them. And after 15 minutes on the call, they were struggling to figure out what they were doing wrong, turned on live stream and saw exactly mm. what they were doing wrong. Their hands are placed the wrong way. They're breathing at the wrong time, etc. Person comes to life right on the screen. Now, thinking about that with, with time, you know, now put against it, it's like the dispatcher spent 15 minutes on that call. That they could have taken other calls where they were trying to sift through what was happening. Because, you know, again, like it's radio to TV shifts, we just a lot more data we can show right. through the device. And it could have been a 30 second interaction where they coached them through that CPR situation. So I think clarity actually allows them to work through some of these calls quicker, because they see mm-hmm. exactly what's happening. And in addition to that, it's like not only for the dispatcher and their time on call, but also to a responder, right? Like if you think about Right now, when callers call in, they either are so yeah, excited by the caller on adrenaline, you know, it's the first time I, they're calling 911, where they will miss things that are critical, or they just don't know something is critical at all. So like you think, if I called in today and I saw a fire, that'd be the biggest fire I've seen in my life, because I don't see many fires. So I would call in and say, please send the entire department. But then, you know, we'll turn on video and we'll see actually to you know, someone that their whole job is fighting fires. That's a one-car response. And we see this in big cities all the time. They're sending 15, 20 cars or fire trucks to these fires that are popcorn in the microwave when really the person should have just stomped on it in that situation. That's a real cost and drain on resources for a city as well. Mm -hmm. If you're under staff and you're sending 20 people to a fire that only needed one person, right, like those 19 other cars that you didn't send could have gone to some other fire or some other event. And so, you know, I think this idea they're using technology to do a lot more with a lot less and we're helping them do that in a lot of these situations.
0: Um, let's just talk about business model I guess for a while because you've got yeah. you're very upfront about free and free for the PSAPs always, right? So what is the business model for prepared and you know what do you look for in terms of revenue?
2: Yeah, great question. So so we um we're committed to offering a base tier of the mm. platform for PSAPs for free forever. And so like we've always been committed to that. You know, I think Premium as a business model has become commonplace in the private right. sector. You know, SaaS, e-commerce, B two B. It is a radical idea to bring that over to to government, yeah. but I don't think like the kind of functions of that model are ill defined or unproven. And so, I think we're just taking that and applying it over. So, based here, the platform for peace apps for free. However, we've already started incorporating premium feature sets into the the platform. So, one of those is language translation mm. for a 911 center. So now 130 plus languages we can translate in real time when a text comes in to our platform. Um, That's something that's really performed really, really well. PSAPs are excited about that potential functionality. And then also anything outside of the PSAP today is also a premium feature set. So the ability to share it out Mm. to police fire EMT. So if you want to see it before you get to an emergency, um, we allow you to do that in real time. So that value prop is the exact same value prop to the 911 center. Just now, you're the person, saying a fire context running in right. to that burning building. We actually think that that's where the information should sit at its endpoint. You know, as opposed to you trying to figure out this game of telephone, the caller is really stressed. It goes to a dispatcher out to you. Yeah. You just have live stream video before you get there, and those are feature sets that we charge for
0: cool what's the compatibility with the freemium versus like the uh, procurement process that you were alluding to earlier is that because that i think would be the big difference like you know like large corporates have procurement processes and stuff that they have to follow but it's quite different than a government or an external publicly funded agency would have right
2: yeah for sure so on free like we've seen that people have been able to which we expected and turned out to be true adopt the platform much easier and simply Right. They have no costs associated with it. You can start using it and engaging with it. And so then once though they want to go over to the premium side of it, it's more like a procurement process mm-hmm. that your typical government would go through for any purchasing thing. Really, the this is the benefit, I think, to having the free platform in is really it's a conversation starter enforcer. Sure. Right? Like it's very easy when you're working on a million different things, you're understaffed, et cetera, to put innovation and kick it down the road, especially when you have this huge process in front of you to say, oh, my gosh, I got to go 12 months RP. I got to tell this player to do this. Like, you have all these things you have to work through. It's easy to say, oh, that's a next year project. It's very different when you can say, hey, we've seen thousands of incidents go through our platform this month where your people are using video. If you just, you know, expanded that out to your responders, they're running into situations right now where they don't know what's going on. It has all of these negative impacts like officer safety, ability to de-escalate, you know, all the things that they really care about in a city. And it's already happening right now. You just have to go through this process to get it out to responders. It forces the conversation. It's something that they're like, okay, I've already seen the value of the platform. This makes sense. It's already worked in my agency. It's not some distant agency where this has worked. Yep. And we've seen it just like be... Kind of a conversation starter.
0: Cool. Okay, so it, it has like the same kind of effects that you would see in a large like SaaS company or something. It just takes a little bit longer to go through the pipes because of the procurement process, maybe. Right.
2: Exactly mm-hmm. right. Yes, yeah. so I think like this is a top of funnel play. Yeah, just like it would be in a you know private or corporate setting, and then the process is just the process <laughs> that you, you have to go through. Yeah. But really, again, I think that that's the hard challenge is is that it, when you have this huge beast of procurement in your face and you got to work through that, it's like top of funnel. Easily gets pushed to a next year thing, where here it's like, all right, I've already seen it. So, yeah.
1: And you mentioned that so many departments have already signed up for this, as you guys have only been launched for, you said, 15 months, I think you said? Yeah, I have to check the date.
2: Yeah, something like that. Wherever the beta flipped over to, we were actually taking people on. But we raised our seed round in January Mm. of last Mm -hmm. year, which was really kind of where we were public about it and saying that we were going to go in sign people
1: up. Yeah. And I'm curious if there's any sort of trends you're noticing and who are these early adopters? Are you seeing a lot of large cities looking to sort of add this on? Smaller cities, college towns, maybe there isn't any correlation there, but I am curious if you're seeing any sort of data about like who is the first or the first willing to kind of like adopt this tech on.
2: Yes, I don't think we've seen any real trends in terms of size or, you know, whether it's urban versus rural, et cetera, spread out. We think there's a value prop for every large city, small city, et cetera. But I think where we're seeing differences in how they're using the platform. So like for a big city, like some of the people that have signed up, you know, Nashville is a good example of one or like Baltimore is another example of cities that have signed up to use it. For them, that value prop may be very different, right? Like it's something that I think would land with them is this resource allocation idea. So you think about it, you, you just have way more fires to take that fire example again. So it's like when you put that over a year, right? Let's like say for, you know, we're having 20 fires a month, 30 fires a month. And if we are inaccurately sizing that fire up and sending those 20 trucks as opposed to one, put that over a year, It's a significant cost mm-hmm. to the city. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we could put those resources in a better place. It's harder to kind of create that kind of ROI conversation for a small city that just like, maybe I have one fire Every single year, you know, so I think for them, resource allocation, it's, I'm super understaffed. I have this huge city. That's the kind of use cases that I think it'll often fall on for the smaller, more rural agencies. They're actually using it in a lot of situations to kind of increase response times, maybe not physical response times, Mm -hmm. but like if you, if it takes you 20, 30 minutes to get to a call, it's really important that you're actually seeing what's happening before you get there because, you know, 20 minutes of unknown. So like maybe the big cities don't have as much of a problem with response time. You know, they have a ton of people that can get to things quickly. But the rural areas that are you know, really spread out with, with not many people to respond will use video in a different way. So I think the use cases are different as opposed to the city types, because we've seen big and small cities adopt the platform there. Cool.
0: Yeah. And Just to get back more to kind of like your story and how you got into yeah. this, when you set out. Like going to school, like you mentioned, you dropped out. Like, did you at all foresee that this might be the path that you were going to take?
2: No, not <laughs> at all. I, I to tell us, so I actually, you know, went into undergrad, I was studying political science, economics, played football too. Mm-hmm. So I was an athlete. Like, if you went back 18 months ago, I was 290 pounds. Today, I'm like 205. <laughs> like, I, I uh, like, that was just like not, you know, the archetype of, hey, I'm going to go found some company. Right. It was just that story. I um, had grown up in that town where there was an active shooter event. And it was just like, I think in college too, like our freshman year, that was the conversation mm. that everybody was having at a national level. Active shooter events is right before COVID were happening really, really frequently. Both my co-founders, Dylan and Neil, grew up in Connecticut. So resonated with Sandy Hook. I think every kid that grew up in Connecticut around that time you know, had the same idea. So like we were like, okay, this is a big problem. Just how can we build something against it? We built that simple app, and then school started launching it. Right? You're like, okay. oh, okay, so we actually got to figure out how to onboard a school and how to do all of these things associated with it. And then it just seemed like such a pressing U.S., but really broadly um, problem. that like, If there's truly 250 million on one calls year, hundreds of millions of calls, leaving life-saving data on the table, someone has to go about solving that. Mm-hmm. So I think that naturally happened. But, and, then, and I also think there's the, the fact that COVID happened, and, and all. this is my senior year that I ended up dropping out. But everybody in my class was taking the year off school All right. to work on it. So my junior year, I, I kind of applied to the, I don't even know if they know this, the fellowship, but I, I kind of applied to the fellowship as a joke. It was like, <laughs> you know, I was with my friends in a room. We sent out the application. I, like, I, I don't think it was the first application was was that good. And so, but, you know, they called back and there's like these eight to 10 conversations. And there's actually this funny story. So I was the first in my, Family didn't go to college. Wow. Yeah. You know, so, well, actually to graduate, I'll give my mom and dad credit there. <laughs> so they went, but they just like had other things that popped up and, and finished. So like, this was a real conversation that I did not want to have right. when, when it came up about dropping out of school. So the fellowship does all of these interviews as part of my class, they were filming kind of a docu-series mm-hmm. around some of the finalists. And so it was COVID. So the place I was living was my house with mom and dad. And so they sent a film crew out. Up until that time, and I'm very close. I'm a finalist now to getting the fellowship. Up until that time, I hadn't even told my parents. This is something <laughs> I was considering. So like, hey, mom, there's this film crew coming. Um, you know, they're interviewing with about the work we're doing with Prepared. If they mention something about dropping out of school, just don't mind that. That doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't know. If I, it's like, what? You're freaked out. They're on the way. and So the first question they asked, too, with a camera on her, because they interviewed as well as part of the series it was like you know miss chime what do you think about michael dropping out of school and she's like i'm absolutely devastated Aww. and so i'm like oh my <laughs> gosh you know no way i get this and then uh, my dad was kind of like michael will figure it out less concerned about it but they asked him the same question my mom was eyeing him like you better answer this <laughs> correctly and, she, and he goes of course i'm devastated too I'm like, thanks dad you know <laughs> for all that. um but yeah ended up getting it and i think that was really kind of you know, the year of covid where we were like okay hey this 911 thing seems like a really really big problem Mm -hmm. we didn't know exactly the connection between schools and 911 but found it throughout that year and just saw cities signing up within our first month double-digit cities signing up yeah that got the interest of first round and google and apc and others who ended up doing our seed round and then it was just kind of off and running
0: nice yeah yeah that sounds uh intense but also like (laughs) like how do you then go and like get the skills necessary for that? Like once you're in and you're, you've you got this like, okay, we did this kind of on a lark, but then you're there. Like, was it just like boot camp of like, oh my goodness, like the fire yeah. hose is coming and I'm trying to absorb all this information or like where did you go for that and what kind of mentorship did you have?
2: Yes, I think there was like, if you want to do this in general, like even if it's right out of school or if you want to start a company at any time, like I don't think there's any experience that exactly pattern matches sure. with that. So like you're, you have to learn really, really fast you no know, matter what, so like I think that the thing that can be most helpful is understanding exactly where am I deficient. And for me, that was like general, broad company building, mm-hmm. and then that was also the industry that we we're in. Like I knew nothing about nine one one going into this. Wait, now, Mike, what you so did much. you bring
0: to? The table? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like I guess I was just like semi-smart and ambitious and wanted to build. It. And I think in it for the right reasons. Yeah. like started yeah. um, building it for schools, and I think that resonated with. The community and I like in our first early days, like I would stay as long as they would let me in these 911s, mm. you know, sleep in the center if they let me. And I think that they saw that I just like really wanted to solve this problem. I thought it was really important and I didn't think anybody was going to go out and try to solve it if we didn't. So I think that yeah, yeah just like a persistence and yeah, I really want this to be successful. Like, and so I think that was what I brought. But other than that, you're right, useless. There's nothing else that I brought to the team. And so I had to learn fast and and bring in people that really did. And and like so, I think that's the most helpful thing a first time founder can do is understand where my deficient, and, and then like be aggressive in pursuing those deficiencies or or learning mm-hmm. against those deficiencies. And I, I think those for me fell into two buckets: is like broad company building. How do you build something from nothing? And then secondly. Nine one one, Right. And so like the something from nothing, I think, you know, like I've been really fortunate and lucky to have, whether that's investors or whether that's organizations like the fellowship, mm-hmm. you know, zero to one is a book that I think a lot of people look at as to how do I build something from nothing. And I think that there was a bunch of people in that community that thought a lot about broadly building companies. First round has been an incredible network for us. And I could name off more of our VCs, but all of them have been really, really incredible in helping us understand that and do that well. And then I think the same thing on nine one one it's like we brought in people. So like I think in total we have 70 years of public safety experience on our team. Mm. People that came from nine one one centers, people that were first responders themselves who joined the team and are having those conversations. And like we have no ego around those things. Like you know this, right? Like I know a thing or two about like how do we build this? How do we bring together a team and like you know nine one one? And I want to learn from you. Like I we brought you here because like you're going to teach me a ton of stuff, and hopefully, I teach you one or two things. Just understanding exactly what those deficiencies are, and then trying to be as um, aggressive about learning against those is the best way to do it. Cool.
0: Yeah. What, do you want to talk a bit more about the fundraising process then, too? Because it seemed like was that mostly facilitated through the Teal Fellowship, or like did you? Yeah. No, it
2: actually wasn't. Oh. I, I am so, so yeah. Interesting story there. We we um had raised a pre-seed prior to the fellowship, so. Another funny story, if you guys want it. I, uh, so, we, yeah. so as an undergrad at Yale, there's no business degree, like just broad business. The closest thing you can get is economics. Okay. So it's liberal arts ed. So I was really interested in that. So I would find my way and sneak into the business school classes and tell the, the professor there, like, you know, I'm building this thing. You know, here's all the stuff I'm learning. I really think. I could add a lot of value to your class and you should give me credits to go and do that. Um, Sometimes I was successful, sometimes I wasn't. In one of those classes where I was successful, it was just broadly a course on entrepreneurship at the MBA equivalent school at at Yale. They call it Yale SOM. Mm -hmm. That course is really cool because the professor never lectures. They always bring in a guest lecture every single week. And it's a VC, it's a founder, it's someone that's just going to teach you stuff. One of those guest lecturers was Carl Alomar. Carl Alomar was the COO of DigitalOcean, and he's the managing partner for M13, which is based in LA. You're mm-hmm. familiar with him. So he guest lectures, and just like at the end of the class, I thought it was really interesting. Professor goes, who wants to walk him to the Uber? And my hand was first. <laughs> Sorry, I want to walk into the Uber. Uh, and so I had my five minutes to make my pitch. And so I pitched him the five minutes there, and basically like, it ended with, hey, I'm working on this thing. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z in the next three months, I'm going to tell you about it in three months. And so I sent him an email just like documenting it, that that's what we were going to do. Three months later, we had done, thankfully, Mm. we had done those things. And he was excited about actually gave us money while we were still undergrads. We hadn't even decided to drop out. So I think that was kind of the first indication of success. And then, you know, I think we had kept up relationships with first round with others, despite that. I think we were on the radar people since we had raised money Mm -hmm. with M13. And then when we had saw kind of the growth that we had seen really quickly in a couple months, then naturally that was a conversation.
0: Nice.
1: Yeah. I'm curious how you guys think about the future of this company. Because I know, as you mentioned, a lot of these sort of topics surrounding 911 calls, police response, and stuff have been really big points of conversation nationally across sure. the stage over the last few years. And there seems to be lots of changes on the horizon to a lot of different departments. People, Adding like mental health professionals as a response item from a nine one one call and the like, and I'm curious, how do you guys think about how this company will sort of be able to evolve as the nine one one calling space, the dispatch space continues to evolve as well?
2: Yeah, and so I think that is awesome question. We've thought about this a decent amount, right? We're building the companies, is thinking about how does this you know, translate into the next five years? I think like the first important goal in front of us is solving that clarity problem. And I think there's all these benefits for the department, for the caller. You know, name anybody that's in this emergency interaction. We think this will be a similar to body cam shift, where every single department will be ingesting information from the caller. Again, it's just like we have a blind spot in those three to four to five minutes before an officer gets on scene, and like it is the best way to capture the citizen's perspective of what's happening. And so we think that'll be a part of every agency. And so like right now, we're about ten percent. Of 911 centers. That sounds great and it's exciting, but 90% don't have us and 90% of agencies are, are still right now using audio as the primary input to get information. Um, and kind of it's a ticking problem. Like every single day, there's going to be 911 calls that leave critical life saving data on the table. Um, we want to solve that first and foremost. And we think that in of itself Will be a big shift but i think that like as part of this the working theory for us is that through offering a free tier through allowing it to be over the top we're showing public safety broadly the power of technology right like what what can we do with better systems and i think across their stack there is antiquated decayed technology and so there's all these places where we could innovate and add new things to what they're doing but i think the first most pressing problem is getting every agency up to speed
0: with the data they could collect yeah i think the other question around this broadly about data collection right is like we've seen a lot of controversy around ring and we've seen you see more and more like i hear people who are like crime scene investigators are talking about like oh like everything is captured on video now like basically it's like absurd for people to think that their crimes are not captured in some capacity on video from some angle from somewhere right like So how do you feel about that? Do you think, is there a danger that you get caught up in that and that there's a public response that is negative to the idea of having this kind of thing? I know you opt in on the side of the customer, but once it's being used more broadly by people who aren't necessarily involved directly in the incident or whatever, but are perhaps captured through the person who is, like their device, like how do you think about those kinds of issues?
2: Yeah, so I think the first thing is, and I'll go back to some of the points that we've made before, is like, one, this person's calling 911. Yeah. So like in this situation, they're kind of soliciting, hey, I need help. And and so we're seeing a really high kind of activation rate of the links that we're sending. People, when you're in a situation, life-threatening, life-altering, so you want the best help. Mm-hmm. You want people to come and help. you. So like we're seeing people be really um, receptive to the idea of sharing information. The second point is exactly what you said, is this is only when they want to. And we have multiple points where people can decide whether or not to contribute data. And so like first clicking on the link, you know, calling 911, clicking on the link, pressing the button and then allowing it. And people drop off all the time Mm. at any of those kind of permissions. We think that's great, right? If you don't want to share information, we don't want to force you. Like we want you to make that decision. Again, people have been really receptive in wanting to. And then I think the last piece of this is like, again, the fundamental problem that we're intending to solve is clarity of what's happening, is getting the perspective of the caller as part of that clarity. And so in a lot of ways, we really think it's a kind of a right of the caller, right? That that it's the caller that if they want to, again, should be able to share their perspective on what's happening in that situation. So that's really how we've answered that question Mm -hmm. is like, you know, like make sure that they have all the the chances to say, no, I don't want to share this info. But really, we think that it's like solving clarity. And at the end of the day, going back and seeing what happening is a good thing for everybody that's involved in that situation, including the caller.
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of like the advent or the increased popularity of like dash cams, right? Like you definitely yeah. see people opting into like, well, I want to make sure that my perspective is represented, given that there is effectively like, you know, omnipresent surveillance. Like it also needs to include my thing, right? Like from my point of view. So. Yeah, totally right. The other question I would have is like uh, just on company growth. Like, what is this rough size, I guess, of the company now, and how have you kind of dealt with that as you've been, you know, leading the company from its inception until now? Yeah,
2: so we're just over twenty people, mm-hmm. so still relatively small, but that's a big uptick from three yeah when we <laughs> uh, So, like, yeah, you know, we we have this funny slide when we onboard a new employee, and we show from twenty twenty to. 2021, we doubled the team size and it was three to six, which was like, not very hard to do. (laughs) Um, But like, yeah, I I think the shift from three to 20, and I'm sure 21 or 25 to 100 are like, you feel those for sure. And so that's been a shift for us. I think that the biggest thing has been, you know, really changing your perspective on what do you do day to day. For me, it was like, just did everything, right? Hey, we need to onboard a customer. I'll go do that. Take the call with them. Hey, we need to talk to them about why this is something important and they should sign up. I'll go do that. Today, we have people working in every one of those things right. that you name. So it's like signing them up, onboarding them, building good product, engineering it. It's so really, I think the biggest shift is just, you know you have to become a manager of things and people, mm-hmm. which is a totally different skill set than actually doing yes. any of those things. And so I think that's been the biggest shift for us. is just like, how do we become really good at, as opposed to doing the right thing, asking the right question or saying, hey, how are we thinking about this? Why is this the way that we're doing x y and z so i think that's been the biggest shift and i expect right as you start to go from 21 to 100 that skill set will always be important but Uh then it's about now we have people that are managing people and we're managing those people. it's about culture it's right like how does everybody operate and work together it's like i I expect that's the next shift but the biggest one for us has just been this do it all to manage it all
0: and have you so far encountered any things you would have done very differently, uh, with your perspective that you have now or what? Yeah. Yeah. Like,
2: like for sure. I sucked at this in the beginning. Like, I, I, uh, like, it's just like a super hard thing. And I think the other challenge too, is you have to work through this kind of challenge where you want to bring on people that really know what they're doing in a given function, right? They're specialists. So like, let's say sales, they sold for 10 years to this customer type and they've been in startups. It's like, how the heck do I manage that person when I've never sold to a single person other than, you know, the 30 months before? And I think, again, really the shift for me was, as opposed to saying, hey, do X, it was more, hey, why are we thinking about X this way? Right, Right? so again, it was less about do X thing because I know all and like, I'm a CEO, let's do it. It was more like, hey, you have a ton of experience here. Part of this is my education and my point of view. Like, why do we think about this this way? Mm -hmm. Because the way I'm thinking about it is this way. And let's like, the best thing for us is to be on the same side, look at the problem, and figure out, like, why are we thinking about it that way? Sure. And, it, and what i found is that they've benefited from perspective. Like, one thing that I can offer every single person that we're talking to is just perspective. I know mean, I'm going to talk to product and engineering and customer success and sales almost every day where you're just talking to customers. Yeah. And so, so it's like, I think that's been the shift. It's just like, as opposed to saying, do X, it's asking, why are we doing X that way? Right. And so asking the right questions as opposed to giving
0: direction. Yeah, which can be a frustrating change. Yeah.
2: Uh- <laughs> That's so hard, right? Like, and, and, and also, like, you just get so attached to the problem. Yes, yeah. Right? yeah. They're, they're your baby, like, especially when you drop out of school and mom's like, why the hell did you do that? You know, like, so you're like, we really need There's to figure this thing out, this. Yeah. you know? Like, and so to let that go and say, hey, this is your thing. You're the one going to make mom happy, not me. So, like, but I, I, uh, I think that's a hard thing to do. You want to be, a, and I still struggle with this daily, yeah. right? I'll have an idea, like, hey, I want to go do something and, Against sales, just to keep that example, I'm gonna go email this customer, and I've always walked back like, oh, that was probably not right. You know, I should have said you should have done this, or, or this is how I would do it if I were gonna do it. And then they'll kind of knock me back and be like, Mike, you did it again. I'm like, you're right. Okay, you, you, just, you just like get better at this over time. And the goal is just, you know, the things that I know are wrong. Do I do less of those tomorrow? Yeah. than I did today. And kind of like the, the hope is, is that if you're getting that X percent of reach. Over time, you're doing a lot better at these things. But yeah, it's a hard thing. I'm still struggling with it and messing it up daily.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's I yeah that I think is the biggest challenge was and is the biggest challenge for me is figuring out the delegation part of it and like being comfortable with that. I mean, it's I think I think that should be right. Like if if you come naturally to delegation and that's like your first instinct i think that's weird i don't uh-huh. know what yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're a board manager yeah. like okay <laughs> and
2: i have friends right that like i went to school with they give me a lot of crap for that they're like you have people and you don't want them to do the work right, right like you right. just sit back you know why would you not want them to do it and, like but i think you're right like especially when you come from doing it all for yeah. an extended period of time we do it for a year and you're just like oh you know i got like you create that muscle i, mean, I just got to work on these things and it's very hard to switch that off yeah. but it's absolutely the right thing to do well yeah. michael
0: unfortunately i think we're just about out of time but it's been great talking to you and i learned a lot about the industry that i didn't know and i also uh, think i learned a lot about your company and like company building so thanks very much for joining us
2: cool yeah i appreciate you uh, having me on
0: All right, Becca, that was our conversation with Michael from Prepared. I think one of the big things that I wish we had talked about more, I think we did talk about it, is, you know, privacy concerns and surveillance state. What do you think about that in the context of stuff like Ring and other things where you see a lot of strong feelings on both sides of the debate?
1: Yeah, no, that's something that I did wish we talked about more, too, because I know just from hearing, like, news stories and sort of this introduction of more body cam footage, just of more video footage in general of these incidents, a lot of people who aren't involved end up getting caught in these videos and stuff, and when stuff gets released, it's, I don't know, it is a weird privacy question there, because... Do you really want to be tied to this video of, say, this horrific event if you literally just stopped by to make sure someone was okay or you just happened to be walking by? It is an interesting question because obviously Michael does a good job of kind of explaining why more data can be helpful for 911, which makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I, it kept coming up in my mind. I can't really stop thinking about it. Just how many people are not going to be able to consent to this who are going right. to end up in these videos and stuff?
0: Yeah. Yes, he d- he did a great job explaining why individuals who are opting into the program would opt into the program and the benefit that it provides them, right? Like the people calling, but... I did ask specifically about people who are on site, like you said, but are not the people actually making the call themselves, which is much more of a gray area. And I think what I also am interested to learn more about is, you know, what are the demographics of people who call 911 versus people who don't? I feel like it's kind of the same as with Ring, where Ring... You know, it's a lot about, well, people are opting in to share this video with the police or with whomever. And it's like, yes, they are because they're like mostly white, affluent, middle class, upper middle class Mm -hmm. customers. Right. And the people who are unduly affected by that are people who are traditionally victimized by police services or like, you know, like at the very least ignored by them, but usually actually like become victims of crimes on their part. So I feel like that is still a huge concern and not really addressed here. It's definitely like an ethical quandary. I'm not saying there's a great easy answer. I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue modernization of these services in service of health and safety, right?
1: Yeah, I think my big worry here is if, say, someone called 911, took a video of something happening or perceived to have happened. And then what if the person in the video turns out to be innocent or turns out to yeah. have actually like found what was happening, not actually have been involved. And none of that video gets out there. Like, I know there's that whole there's a huge conversation even before the video, even before any of this about how if you get charged with a heinous crime, even if you're found innocent, a lot of people don't consider you innocent after that. Yeah. And so I wonder if this kind of feeds a little bit into that in some instances where people will be caught on videos that will kind of follow them regardless of what their involvement was. But yeah, I feel like everything with 911 and safety, like you all have to toe such a tight line because obviously you want right. people to get the help they need faster. So it is such a hard ethical question.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you bring up a great point that we've seen I think specifically, you know, a lot of the examples end up being Reddit citizen crime solvers, right? We'll Mm -hmm. like say, oh, look, look, we found this footage and it identifies this person. And this person is therefore the suspect and let's track them down. And then, you know, hours later, it's like, it turns out that person is not involved and please stop harassing them. But you kind of can't put the genie back in the, the bottle
1: at that point. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing about this that I found interesting was that he... Dropped out of Yale. It's, I think, for all of the episodes we've done with this, very few of them we've talked about the actual, that like sort of prototypical founder experience of like Mm -hmm. dropping out of an Ivy League college to pursue something. So that was kind of interesting. And I like that his family was like, that to me was often we hear about it and it's like, well, the people are coming from a place where they're going to have a soft landing regardless. Like their parents are all also Stanford academics or whatever and well-established. But in this case, it's like he would have been the first person to graduate from college and his family, which is quite a different thing,
1: right? Mm -hmm. No, that is such an interesting aspect to this too because obviously Yale, a great place that he was coming from, so it's definitely not super far off from some other things. But yeah, thinking about That dynamic of like going home to Ohio, your parents were pumped for you to be the first to go to college, and you're just like, "Well, I'm doing this other thing instead." Yeah, but yeah, I mean, hopefully, at least works out in the end. But that is true. We generally only people love to say they dropped out, and then you like look into them a bit, and you're like, which wouldn't matter for you at all. Right,
0: right, (laughs) yeah. It's like, oh, no, I guess you uh, only got three years of your four-year Stanford thing, and now you have to go back to your trust fund or whatever. Yeah, right? that you but. weren't paying for it to
1: begin with, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it, they saw organic pickup, right? That was an interesting part of the story, too, that their origin story was kind of the classic, like, oh, we're in college and we're building this thing for colleges because it's like so close to our lived experience. But then that they quickly saw this organic pickup from public safety agencies who were like, well, we want this thing too, right? So then Mm -hmm. they were able to kind of pivot organically into that. So I do think that the demand is really strong there. And then being selected for that TL fellowship is also like nothing to sneeze at in terms of setting you up for future success.
1: Definitely. And you are right. The fact that people were reaching out to them about using this service definitely stood out to me because I've chatted with other utility like startups trying to sell to public entities, small government, little utility companies, and it's they're like it's the hardest thing to sell right. to that there is. So it's very it's very telling of how much this tech could help these different 911 centers, public safety organizations, if they're reaching out for it. I don't consider that bunch to be particularly active or no progressive in going out to find. Like innovation yeah. to add on
0: they're super slow moving right but you can tell there's an obvious need for it too and i think it was interesting that he brought in kind of the labor crisis there right where it is hard for them to staff these things although again that's another like nuanced point where it's like well what are you paying people and yeah, right <laughs> yeah
1: also hearing people yeah. in distress like on the phone your whole right. shift does not that's not a huge appeal for a job, even if it was paying a lot of money, which as a public service, it's obviously probably not. Yeah. So
0: No, but I mean, potentially once you start capturing this kind of data, you can, you would hope like better that aspect of it. Right. It's like, well, now how can we deal with kind of the trauma that results or something? But in other ways it would be like, well, you're exposing people to even more because now they're not just hearing about the things they're actually seeing it. Right. So that would be another area that I would have liked to explore more with Michael is like, Do they think about that or do they talk with their customers about how they're dealing with the increased potential risk that comes with exposure to that kind of trauma?
1: No, it's so true. Because hearing about something is way different than actually seeing it. And especially for these type of dispatchers, it's not like you or I coming across a video like that and being like, oh, shoot, shut that off. Like, I don't want to see that. It's like they don't have a choice. It's their job. Yeah. So definitely a part of the conversation. I would be curious kind of how they're navigating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there will probably be a chance for us to speak to him again. We like to check in on the progress of some of our founders from time to time. And I bet Prepared isn't going anywhere anytime soon because it seems like there's ample demand for these kinds of features and services in the market. But we will check back in and we'll ask him all the thorny, hard questions when we do.
1: We'll be like, this is the second call, the bad cop Mm -hmm. call.
0: Mm Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.